0: Hi, I'm Matt.
1: And I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to
0: Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs.
1: Today on the show, we take a closer look at the Defense Policy Review released by the government earlier this month on June 7th. But first, a quick follow up to the developing diplomatic situation in the Middle East.
0: So Gulf countries have outlined demands to Qatar to end a diplomatic crisis, including the shutdown of the media outlet Al Jazeera, the devolution of Qatar's relationship with Iran and the removal of Turkish troops from within the state's borders. So the original claim made by this coalition in the Gulf was to punish and condemn Qatar's alleged involvement in terrorist activities, specifically Qatar's funding of regional terrorist cells, the connection to which the state does not wholly confirm or deny. So there's a few implications with this story. Uh, nominally, Qatar is one of the largest international funders to the Gaza Strip, and some are fearing that this 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 diplomatic incident, this embargo, could actually affect the aid that reaches some of the most vulnerable people there. Um, In addition, this move seems to be an extension of Saudi efforts to isolate Iran from the rest of the region. And again, uh, Iran is considered as one of the main rivals to Saudi Arabia for influence in the Middle East. And there's also the demand for the shutdown of Al Jazeera, which could be due to the Saudi alliance considering uh, Saudi... er, considering Al Jazeera to be, you know, a propaganda mouthpiece for Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood.
1: And off of that, we go to Yemen. And Yemen continued internal breakdown has led to mounting health crises, the most recent including cholera outbreaks, numbering over 200,000, with the estimated growth to 500,000 individuals. This is a direct result of destroyed vital infrastructure in the towns and cities and threatens to overwhelm hospitals in the near future. The domestic conflict in Yemen has been spiraling out of control since 2011, with severe escalation in the past two years, with 7,600 killed and 42,000 injured. This conflict stems from the exiled president, Abraba Mansour Hadi, back in 2015. Forces loyal to Hadi continue to fight against Houthi rebel forces responsible for the president's exile. Now Saudi Arabia, backed by the United States, France, and the United continues to conduct airstrikes against Houthi rebels, displacing more than three million people within the state's borders. The multinational logistical intelligence and military support does not bode well for the arguments for international interventions and civil conflicts, as neither side appears to hold a decisive military victory in the near future. With Al-Qaeda controlled territory in the midst of Hadi government strongholds, the strategic framework may only prove to grow more complicated and entrenched, as well, it has been reported by The Guardian that one in three Saudi air raids on Yemen hit civilian sites. Consequently, aid workers, including the World Food Program, United Nations Emergency Assistance, among others, are increasingly overwhelmed with the growing need for humanitarian assistance, currently estimated around 18 million. This may soon lead to regional migration crises in the Gulf, to which continued sparring between wealthy states such as Qatar and Saudi Arabia may prove an immeasurable challenge for cooperation. And with that, let's move on to our main conversation tonight regarding the Canadian Defense Policy Review. We're joined by our research team, Mark Hyken and Samran Roy, today. Welcome to the studio.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us in here. Good to be on the other side of the glass.
0: So, Samran, you were at a panel event last week uh, hosted by the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies here at Carleton uh, discussing this very document. So, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the panel and what was discussed.
3: Uh uh-huh. Yes, I was in the discussion last week, uh, moderated by nipsia's own uh, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, along with uh, Dr. Andrew Sharon, uh, Director of uh, the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies. Also, there was uh, David Perry from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Stephen Seidman from uh, nipsia as well, Eleanor Sloan from the Carlton Department of Political Science, and retired Colonel Alan Stevenson. So the discussion basically focused around different parts of the defense policy review with each of the panelists focusing on a particular topic related to the review. These topics were domestic analysis, defense budget and finances, threats to Canada, expeditionary operations, and policy and government processes. Uh, the broad themes that overlap different topics were discussions on whether or not the policy review is in fact a response to the Trump administration, if the money promised for defense spending is actually justified, and the presence of a Cold War type defense spending
1: plan. Thanks for that. And just to give our listeners a few covering points, titled Strong, Secure, and Engaged, this policy review outlines spending plans for national defense until 2027. In particular, Defense Minister Harjit Sarjan pledged to increase annual defense spending from the current $18.9 billion to $32.7 billion by the 2026-2027 fiscal year, bringing it to 1.4% of GDP. The increased spending is meant to allow for greater investment in military capabilities, such as the replacement of frigids and destroyers in the Royal Canadian Navy and overhaul of land combat capabilities.
0: So the policy review also states that regular forces will grow by 3,500 to a total of uh, 71,500 uh, 71, soldiers. And that will increase operational flexibility while the reserve force will be expanded by 1,500 to reach a total of 30,000. So notably, the government has also pledged to develop increased surveillance capabilities in a fleet of armed, unmanned aerial vehicles, so, you know, also known as drones, as well as developing an offensive cyber warfare capability to support military missions. So to further contextualize this policy review, let's begin with the panel discussion that took place last week here at Carlton.
4: So... The goal today is really to kind of talk along five themes. I think I have a clicker here, which I will abuse. So uh, we have an amazing panel, and actually I'm going to give credit to Andrea Sharon, who is our coordinator exceptional who, who really did put this together uh, and, and has done such a wonderful job. But basically, we're gonna be looking at these five themes, uh, domestic analysis, the budget aspects of it. Um, actually, I have to say, I was in the lockup watching Dave Perry literally stalk the defense people around with his numbers <laughs> going around. So if someone has crunched the numbers, it is this man here. Um, uh, Steven Sademan's gonna be speaking about threats. Eleanor Sloan will be speaking about expeditionary analysis. And Al Stevenson will be speaking about force readiness. And if anyone cares about drones or cyber, I can probably throw in some comments, too. Um, So each panelist is going to have approximately...
1: And that, who you just heard, was Stephanie Carvin kicking off panel discussion on the Defense Review review. You can listen to the panel in its entirety on our website at www.policytalkspodcast.com or on iTunes.
0: So I suppose kicking off, uh, Somrin or uh, Mark, uh, perhaps your first impressions on the defense policy review, just give us your basic ideas. What are you thinking? Is it crazy, ambitious? Is it?
2: It feels like, honestly, in a lot of ways, it's sort of sticking to the old status quo. I mean, for instance, there isn't much in there about increasing expeditionary forces, which seems to go against a a promise that the Liberals campaigned on back in the 2015 election, that Canada would be more involved with peacekeeping missions. There was speculation for a long time we we would be sending troops to Mali. That hasn't really happened. I don't think, like, the impression I get from the defense review is that that's not as much of a priority. And there's much more of a focus on domestic defense Mm -hmm. and well, what are called force-multiplying capabilities that is basically capabilities that increase the effectiveness of armed forces without actually increasing the number of troops involved, so things like intelligence-gathering capabilities, uh, unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, just building off that, I mean, one of the things that really stuck out to me as an overarching theme for the whole... uh, across the re- Defense Review review, I guess, was the fact that there is a lot of rhetoric in the document itself that indicates to Cold Warish, ish uh, I guess, international relations symptoms, kind of. So what I'm indicating is that, um, so this 2017 review reflects more to the 1964 Defense Policy Review compared to the 1994 p- Defense Policy Review, if you do just a quick comparison. And this is the point that was raised by one of the panelists. So, I mean, what's the reason for this sort of shift in our defense policy review is something to be considered. Why is there uh, use of words as deterrence? Why are we trying to build up certain NORAD capabilities which were built up back in 1964? If there is a change, there's a perception to be given out that a threat has changed.
2: I, my immediate response would be that it's because of Russia. Mm. I, feel, I feel like th- that's the cliched answer here, but Russia is more aggressive yeah. than it was back in the nineties when it was still recovering from its fall from superpower status. It's much closer in a sense to what it was like in the 60s, maybe not in terms of the sheer military power and influence, but in terms of its relations with Western states like Canada and the United States. So there is sort of a need for deterrence, especially now that, like it's almost certain at this point that they were actively involved. With influencing the elections in the U.S., they've attempted to do that in France as well. They've apparently tried to hack the United Kingdom Parliament. So Canada needs to sort of step up its game here to essentially deter Russia again.
0: So, you know, on that point, uh, maybe I'd make a note, and I'd be interested in getting your feedback on this, is with what many have sort of, you know, characterized as the US perhaps retreating from some of its traditional you know responsibilities internationally of its of its role as you know a global leader is this Canada perhaps hedging its bets on NATO as sort of the centerpiece of its national security
3: I mean yes yes and no I mean I'm I'm hesitant to agree fully with your statement because as if you guys look at the basic budgetary numbers that um the doctor Perry uh, discusses. He he raises the point that, yeah, our budget has gone up seventy percent, and we are basing this seventy percent as the go-to number that the media and American media and White House with the Trump is basically putting out, saying, oh, they listen to the needs of America. America's taking a step back, so Canada's gonna fulfill that void. But then again, the NATO number that asks for defense uh, GDP per country who's a member of NATO is two percent. With even with this jump, we're only at one point four, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So is it really a big jump?
1: And, I mean, going off of that, we should maybe jump into a little bit more of the discussion. Great mm-hmm. points so far. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm getting carried away.
1: Yeah.
4: <laughs> General comments as they relate to this document and the domestic scene. First of all, I think for all the talk that
1: uh, we've heard from this government about Canada's back a lot of
4: reflection on what will be future missions overseas, especially a potential UN mission. From my perspective, the Defence of Canada has been the big winner in this defence policy. And as Stephanie said, that's rather surprising because Liberal governments tend to focus more on the away game than they do on the home game. So that would be my, my first comment.
1: Okay, and that who you just heard was Professor Andrea Sharon, who you might remember from earlier episodes on policy talks, and she was discussing expeditionary capabilities, which Mark had defined earlier as, you know, otherwise known as the away game in this sense. And do you think that's a the idea of the away game was very interesting to me because we see or we tend to see Canada's having has it moved away from its peacekeeping role? It doesn't have a lot of outward aggressions or missions in other countries that could be categorized as a war, right? They have very small troop numbers or they serve to train local enforcements in other countries such as Afghanistan. But it I don't know. I want to hear your, your thoughts on this.
2: When you really look at the history, Canada hasn't actually been that involved in peacekeeping we we like to build on sort of our reputation what with lester b pearson being responsible for proposing u.n peacekeeping forces and winning a nobel peace prize for that we've sort of been coasting on that we haven't been that involved in peacekeeping over the years and we've gotten worse about it obviously especially over the past decade or so we sort of withdrew from the world stage in that regard we're a little more involved in operations. we've played a big role in afghanistan there's some involvement in iraq now you guys um, obviously have heard about this sniper who's set a world record there and that leads to questions is canada military involved in iraq now they're not supposed to be technically yeah that's true i mean i just mentioned the away game right like the idea that
3: Canada is, uh, as a country with 32 million, uh, sitting right beside the big American super house, uh, superpower military, are we expected to have a bigger role in terms of ex- uh, external operations? I'm, n- I'm not sold by this defense review or the new budget, defense budget that that's going to be the role. I think it's more to uh, solidify Canada's own defense operations at home.
0: I think uh, just to kind of build on what we've talked about here, I read a piece by Brigadier General James Cox, retired, um, who kind of critiqued the uh, defense review kind of along the same lines. And one point that he stressed was that, you know, the piece's focus was almost squarely on the Canadian Armed Forces. And in doing so, it sort of overlooked, you know, other Canadian actors that are traditionally involved in defense policy, though perhaps in more of an international sense. So we're talking about diplomats, you know, civilian intel, development officials. And these are kind of, it, these individuals, these, these these sort of defense policy components, it does seem are somewhat overlooked, if not, you know, forgotten altogether in this defense review.
2: I, I think that's a good point. And I mean, that's an increasing concern these days because soft power wielded through diplomacy and trade and such is, arguably just as important as the hard power through the military. And I mean, for instance, when you look down at the U.S., the Trump administration's come under a lot of criticism for sort of neglecting those things in favor of military power. And should we, be hol- we should be holding Canada to the same standard here. We shouldn't say, well, you know, it's not okay when the U.S. does that, but it's fine when we're focusing on our own military over diplomacy because, you know, we're Canada.
1: And granted, that is the defense policy review review, we don't really get that sense of what the diplomacy looks like and whether or not it's matching up in that way. And off of that point, we discussed, you know, the talk of force multiplying capabilities. And Mark, you allude to this earlier about having technology that reinforces the troops that you are committing to the ground. What did you see in this policy in the defense review and what the panelists had said about those capabilities, do you buy into their arguments that that this will help out a lot, or do you think it's kind of detracting yeah. from the point?
3: Um, I, th- I think technology, for s- a lot of parts, or, or just innovation as a as a new breed of adding to the military was was there p- in the review. Uh, the panelists, especially s- uh, Steven Seidman, when discussing threats, uh, highlighted the fact that cyber stands as the main threat to Canada's s- national security. Uh, he made the f- he, m- he noted that uh, in this budget, Canada does make uh, budgetary commitments to offensive cyber capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Canada is w- willing and looking to address uh, cyber threats outside and taking the action to bring down, say, hackers from China or other mm-hmm. countries. Um, also, in terms of just innovation, it's important to note that in this budget, there's over uh, $10 billion over the next 20 years, I think, for academics, uh, private sector, uh, companies, corporations, to work with the Canadian national military to d- work on things such as drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, mm-hmm. intelligence, uh, a- and other data centers or whatnot. So there is a strong roof innovation, at, and I think that does address as as in, in long run will be acting as a force multiplier.
2: I have to agree, and it's worth mentioning in terms of drones, Canada's basically playing catch up at this point. Most other developed countries at this point have some kind of unmanned aerial vehicle capability in regards to offense as well as surveillance. So, if Canada wants to play a bigger role abroad or even just for defense, it's a good idea to have at least some of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe not nearly to the same extent as the U.S., but then again, that's a whole other level of spending that I don't think Canada is necessarily going to be capable of achieving, and we shouldn't aspire to that much because We're a much smaller country, both in terms of population and economy.
5: Provide some small improvement to expediency because there won't be any discussions back and forth with central agencies about where money has to come from or not. The real big winner here, and I think where the, the, at least in my assessment, where the actual demand was before the review, is that uh, there's a very significant change proposed to uh, how much money is available for capital, both infrastructure and equipment. Over the long term, um, this is gonna see, if it actually happens, a paradigm shift and how much money is av- available to buy new kit and buildings. So it's gonna see cap- the share of the defense budget and cash terms, sorry, so the share of defense spending in cash terms go from about 20, sorry, 12 to 15% of the budget over the last five years to immediately 30%, and within seven years go to above 40% of the capital budget of the overall defense budget going towards capital. For the sake of comparison, the last time Canada spent anywhere close to 40% on capital uh, was when we were in Korea. So this is a massive and totally um, paradigm-shifting change. If it actually
0: comes... So a massive paradigm uh, change here is what the speaker noted in terms of the enormous increase in capital spending. Um, I mean, just to throw out some numbers there, there's... I think, $23.2 billion for new army equipment, 60 for 15 new warships, and then you have 15 to $19 billion for 88 new fighters. And, I mean, that's just a part of the overall spending package. Mm-hmm. So maybe your impressions on the cost, is this too ambitious? Um, is this just reality sort of catching up with government and that, you know this this sort of spending can't be pushed off any longer. It's the sad reality that we do need to pay this much to sort of retrofit the military and bring it up to where it needs to be.
2: Yeah, I have to say that this spending seems like it's been long overdue. The Canadian Armed Forces, well, specifically the Navy and the Air Force have been criticized for a long time because the equipment and vehicles have been long out of date. The Navy is sort of You you hear a lot of jokes about the Navy's submarine fleet essentially being like one or two subs, and that's not far off from reality at this point. I think it's something like four that are operational, and at least one of them requires near-constant maintenance. So retrofits and replacements are at this point not so much a luxury as an absolute necessity. It's if we want to have a functional Navy and Air Force and we need to update and military equipment overall. Uh, I mean, Matt, like you mentioned, these are like insane, massive jumps in numbers
3: in terms of the funding that's going to be coming down the pipeline. But just com- a couple of concerns that were raised at the panel that it really stuck out to me was that a l- couple of the panelists made sure to mention that despite having this big surge in uh, funding, is the procurement uh, service, or the procurement process, or the procurement policies in place currently able to even deal with all this money? Mm-hmm. And uh, the concern is that despite having the money, a lot of times the money will not even be used because the procurement officials or the even the procurement service in place at the current moment is just not capable enough to deal with the the surge as you just discussed. So that is the another question that needs to be addressed along with this review.
0: Yeah, I suppose if they actually do get the money yeah. then that would be a major issue. Um, you know another point that I've seen raised several times is that if you look at the uh, 2008 conservative defense policy, they had, you know, a, a, a similar sort of shopping list that was quite ambitious, but it was cut, uh, significantly just to balance, you know, future federal budgets. And, you know, it seems like there is a risk of this happening again, given that, you know, up until the next election, uh, the actual taps are, are, are still going to be squeezed quite tightly. You only have a few, you know, hundred million, Uh, committed for the next couple of years until I think 2019 at which point it's envisioned that you would get a lot of money through but that's an election from now which you know I I I think people are right to be skeptical
1: and I think one thing that really jumps out at least to me is you know it seems like a lot of money from the outface but are we are we kind of splitting hairs in a sense where we can view it in a kind of in its own basket and say well yeah that's a lot of money but compared to other countries and their national Mm. defense spending it's it's really not but then again Canada does not spend a lot of money overall even compared to other countries so I think I like how they outlined it as a percentage of the capital budget Mm. so in relation to what Canadians are willing to spend on these sorts of endeavors and initiatives the fact that it's a climbing percentage of that you know should we be expanding government budget overall to accommodate that this should be a smaller percentage of the overall spending that the nation does make on other projects such as going into foreign diplomacy and using that as a as a first strike rather than a military uh, any sort of military invention as a first strike i
2: mean i would like to also point out Part of the reason we're spending so much, again, is to retrofit a lot of aging equipment, which is uh, happened to begin with because we weren't spending that much before, and so we didn't really keep up, whereas a lot of other countries have made at least some effort to keep their equipment relatively up to date, maybe not to the point of, say, constantly replacing everything because that would be financially unsustainable, but Canada's sort of the opposite extreme, We've been putting off spending for too long. Now we have to play catch up.
3: Yeah, exactly. And Stephen Seidman says the exact same thing. He basically says, uh, yeah, good. More money is good. Uh, it will help the military do what the job is better. But does it? Is it really enough money to really change the, I guess, the characteristics or the direction of the Canadian military? That's that's so that's the point. I'll just want to drive home,
0: Bridget. I think you raised a good point with just how perhaps we've almost been spoiled, or or in the sense that we've gotten so used to such low levels of spending that you know anything that mm-hmm. in reality might be just quite moderate is viewed as sort of you know extraordinary or just too much. Um, What's interesting is I actually found a McLean's abacus poll which shows that 58% of Canadians are actually widely supportive of additional defense spending. So perhaps they've kind of rolled this out at the right time.
1: And going off of these points, I guess switching, switching the playing field a bit up, is going into the discussion of cyber intelligence and cybersecurity that happened at the panel.
6: It's been under cyber attack yesterday. It'll be under cyber attack tomorrow. Uh, and that has a partial, it's partially a military issue. Uh, this is where the, today my running argument with Stephanie about what is national security, uh, where our Venn diagram joins because cyber is something that the civilians take seriously and there's a lot of gov- government stuff to deal with that and the military takes seriously. And so in terms of that issue of cyber, there is military equities here and we see that in the document. They, they played up cyber attacks. There's, when we speak about new money, In the document, one of the basic tendencies uh, within the document is that there weren't many hard choices made, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And so in order to have new money, you actually have to spend new money. And uh, to do something new, such as cyber, you actually need to allocate new people because you can't take old people from some of their tasks because that would require some uh, tussling. And so what we see in the document is one of the most specific things about it is new people to do cyber, new people, new money. Uh, so that's a real relationship between the external threat world and the document. Cyber more of a threat today than it was 10, 20 years ago, obviously. Now we're actually going to have some people do it, and there's some other stuff in the document as well about uh, changing standards of readiness so that people who are, might be good at cyber may not have to be.
0: All that so I think, uh, you know, obviously the emphasis on cyber is totally warranted. Um, if, you know, just basically, if you think of our increasingly digital economy... Um, you think about critical infrastructure, you think about emergent technologies, all of this has sort of, you know, widened or really exploded the cyber threat environment and you combine that with increasingly, you know, accessible uh, like cyber attack tools that are, um, you know, open to a range of actors, many of them low skilled um, and that's the thing, you're facing you know, perhaps you know state backed actors, you're facing cyber criminals, you're facing hacktivists, so the government, I think, is right to highlight cyber as, you know, um, perhaps a marquee threat. I'd like to get your opinions on that, though.
2: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on this one, Matt. The cyber aspect is something that the government does need to put more emphasis on. I'm glad that they've, they're doing that with this defense review. And the past year has shown us that there are a lot of ways that foreign governments or even their proxies can... Use a, a technology to influence uh, areas in other countries. I mean, the, the interference in the U.S. election last year is the most obvious example of this. But again, just this pa- these past few weeks, we've heard about uh, the U.K. Parliament uh, being subject to cyber attack. Which, if it happened to the U.K., there's no reason it couldn't happen to other countries as well. And it seems like we need to spend more. To actually develop capabilities to counter this,
3: uh, just to like uh, play devil's advocate for a second, um, cyber yes, it is a military issue, but only uh, for a f- small percentage or a lesser percentage than we, than we this d- review may made it seem as because national security, uh, policing, or uh, and even the private sector have to play an enormous role as well to defend cyber properly. I mean, it is a, like if in, in in Canadian context, the it is a, it is a Topic or area where bodies such as RCMP, CSIS, CSEC, um, Public Safety Canada have to play an enormous role. So like, we should keep an eye out for funding increases in those departments as well to really say that, yes, Canada is at the forefront fighting cyber uh, threats as much as it can. And
1: I would say, even going off of that, I feel like from a budgetary perspective, cybersecurity is such a high approval rating because it's one of those subjects everyone knows probably the mm-hmm. least about. You know it. <laughs> CSIS mm-hmm. and other intelligence bodies are notoriously closed doors, and they have had a lot of criticism for not necessarily being the best information shares because information is leverage, and the more puzzle pieces you can find out mm-hmm. there to create your own narrative, it's good for you internally, but it doesn't really do anything when other bodies could be acting on that information. So... I don't know. I'm a little bit between. I'd like to see where this goes. Obviously, I'm I wouldn't say no to cybersecurity mm-hmm. given everything that's been going on in the news lately, but it's a it's a curious point.
0: I would say it's a bit of an awareness problem maybe. I I mean, I think by and large, even if, you know, Canadians are more interconnected today than ever before, a lot of them in terms of actual cybersecurity, you know, their awareness starts and stops at how to make a strong password and for a lot mm-hmm. of them It can't even really even get that far. And, you know, their notion of threats might be identity theft or, you know, having their credit card stolen, that sort of thing. But, I mean, if you look at Ukraine, which has been under sort of constant cyber barrage since the whole Crimea incident, um, I believe it was in 2014 and again in 2015, could be 2015, 2016, but it's a couple of years where they actually had, um, you know, sophisticated uh, cyber attackers take down... uh, a series of power plants knocking out, you know, that power for hundreds of thousands of people. I think it was either on Christmas or, you know, it was during the season, so it was cold. Yeah. And, I mean, given that it's gotten to the point where it's that sophisticated, I mean, we're talking, you know, perhaps not quite Stuxnet sort of uh, capability, but close, and it's out there, right? So it's smart to at least appreciate the threat, even if it's perhaps not, you know the most easily understood amongst Canadians to at least get that dialogue going. And I don't think cyber, like many of these things, is going to require an enormous sort of funding package. Um, you do just need to sort of train up that 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 human talent.
3: Yeah, I mean, exactly it, right? The human talent, especially uh, army, like when they, the uh, to get into the armed forces, there's such strict physical requirements, right? Ha- to really have a sophisticated cyber fighting force, what sort of, are they going to change their requirements, the characteristics of when they look, look to hire talent to get into those departments? Is will, it, will there be a shift in the human resources, as you mentioned? And that's the, the next step. The money's good, but does it really reflect real change?
6: As far as I can tell, no choices were made. No hard choices were made. Now, the defense minister ruled out cutting military bases. That wonderful map that, that we had up earlier shows lots of military bases, lots of them. More, far more than I was expecting. I think, isn't that what the, each flag means as a military base, Andrea? Yeah,
4: or instill each, the, the, uh, a military presence
6: of, no. Do we need that many? Yes. No, we don't. <laughs> the politicians may need that many. We do not need that many. Uh, just like in the United States, where closing military bases is unpopular because it means losing votes. Uh, the defense minister ruled that out before the, the, the review got underway. Um, I think if you take a look at the specifics in the document, I've asked the question, what things did the um, Army, Navy, and Air Force not get in this document? And so far, um, the response has been crickets. I've, I've not heard anything about stuff being ruled out. That there's been no relative losses. The only thing I can imagine is that no, there's no discussion of, of, the, of a new submarine, but there's discussion of these submarines lasting to 2030 or mid-2030s. Um, good luck with that um but otherwise
1: so that was steve sademan again throwing a wrench into every (laughs) panel he enters but you know i think it's it's a very valid point i agree with that you know there this was a lot of status quo in a lot of ways and that was a lot of the criticism coming out that there were no hard choices made in the policy it's you know we operate or we help run out of these military bases abroad and we're we're sticking to it and we have all these training infrastructures within the state as well and we're we're keeping to that what are your thoughts
2: yeah it's kind of weird that we've been sticking so close to the status quo especially since this past November it kind of got upended we've got a president down the U.S. now who's fairly unpredictable so and it does seem to indicate a certain degree of maybe unreliability from the U.S. now. And Foreign Minister Christian Freeland brought that up in her speech in Parliament a while back, that the U.S. may not be as reliable as it used to be and that Canada needs to step up. So it's kind of strange to me that maybe that d- doesn't seem to be re- necessarily reflected in the defensive policy review.
0: I think if, you know, bear with me, this might sound a little strange, but it strikes me as a very ambitious review in the sense that they're trying to please, you know, the U.S. of continental defense. They're trying to please NATO. They're trying to please the U.N. So by being so ambitious, it's almost as though they're being very careful in that they're trying to not not curry favor, but just please all of their sort of traditional allies and perhaps, you know, hedge their bets on everybody to avoid being burned too bad by, you know, the failure of one partner. And if you just kind of look at the reactions uh, that the review has gotten, it's, it's been quite favorable across the board. So obviously, you know, at the outset, just based on the text, um, our allies are pleased. You have, you know, the UK Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon, you know, showering us in praise. He welcomes the defence policy and its commitments. Um, you have Na- uh, the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. He also welcomes the Canadian defense policy and its commitment to NATO. You have U.S. Secretary of Defense James Mattis praising Canada's spending commitments, as well as its its relationship with the U.S. and NATO. So, across the board, um, everybody seems pretty happy. I haven't run into anything by the U.N. yet, but um, that could just be my poor research capabilities. But um, it'll it'll really like. I think what's important is to see in a couple years down the road what they actually deliver on, at which point I think we'll get a better idea of what this government's actual defense vision is because right now it's it's everything.
1: And I think that's a good point. And one, I mean, there is the practicality of that you are regionally bound and one of only few borders that you have and the largest is with this behemoth of a country. And so they did make you know, illusory comments to Merkel's Europe should forge its own path, right? But at the same time, they're appealing to the United States. So it it is true that it's a very political game when you put this out there. And what you want, what you kind of want the defense policy review to do is to be a mirror, right? Whoever is looking at it at that time sees what they want to see, and I think that's a lot of crafty writing. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of vagisms and broad brush strokes.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, that's interesting way to say. It. It's like the, the the perception you're reading it from. You can get, get different meanings because, for example, uh, the one of the rhetorics uh, uh, overwhelmingly found throughout this document is the term "force readiness." Uh, force readiness is compared to when you look, understand it, or ask like, different experts. Or if, if you ask someone in America, that force readiness could be that they're ready to interfere in Syria with the military military capability, or force readiness means they're just improving the borders to make sure that the Canadian borders with NORAD uh, being uh, in- increased, uh, the capabilities of NORAD being increased are improved. But what does force readiness really mean?
0: I think—oh, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. Go for but, it. Um, I think a point that we haven't brought up at all, which is sort of a shame because it's such an enormous part of this review— is the emphasis on just military personnel and their families, and you know, enhancing you know care and and you know the the uh, support available to them. So here you could have force readiness just in the sense that you have you know um, a healthy military, you know, one that's well supported. So like you said, there's so many ways to look at this. Um,
1: and going off of that, you know, we could talk about peacekeeping and peace operations
4: abroad restates that Canada is prepared to, talk, to participate in UN uh, peace operations. It says that Canada will make tangible, value-added contributions to these operations. It identifies leadership positions, it says uh, possible ground troops and critical enablers, it has a strong focus on peace support operations. And I thought that that was kind of surprising. The Liberals have been promising this mission for well over a year now, uh, and the delay, we're not exactly sure why, but uh, has come out recently, probably due to a recalibration in light of the Trump election, but also due to a steep learning curve on uh, the part of the government as to how difficult modern peacekeeping is. At this point, a concrete commitment, commitment to a UN mission doesn't seem to be around the corner anytime soon, And what I was expecting to see in this document is sort of a quiet downplaying of that earlier commitment, uh, much as the government is suddenly silent on that much-touted fighter capability gap. Now, it's an interesting point to say that
1: are we going to be willing to answer the calls that we had previously been committed to under the peacekeeping umbrella, whether it be Mali or the Central African Republic? What did you guys see in this? Do you feel that the commitment is quite strong to follow up on having Canadian armed forces in these missions abroad or you think there is kind of a a tipping or a, a I guess a walking back from the ledge on these commitments or soft uh, commitments?
0: I uh <laughs> kind of an off note, but I kind of feel like the liberal government is perhaps Learned a bit too much from Trump with, you know, Mm. announcing that something will come soon. You know, (laughs) I'll release my info about the tapes soon. So it's, you know, we're going to announce our peacekeeping initiative soon. But that's been going on for so long. Um, I mean, somebody here, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a long document and I read it about a week ago. But I do believe there were a few mentions of peacekeeping Uh, Definitely, definitely wasn't, you know, totally omitted from the text. Um, There were stated commitments or at least planned commitments of at least, I think, one long, large-term mission and two short-term large missions and then one long-term, you know, smaller mission and then two short-term, smaller missions. Um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, this, this characterization is large, is perhaps a little bit off the mark, seeing as how... Large to you know the drafters of this review is between 500 and 1500 soldiers. So compared to you know to past uh, policy reviews or past commitments where large might have meant 10,000 soldiers, uh, 500 to 1500 is is quite modest, but it's still something. So it, it's there, but it, we're still lacking those key details.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's almost like they want to have those details of a potential mission. Or having the capability of potential mission down there, just because we are, we have to keep in mind that everything, uh, can the Canadian government does right now in terms of foreign affairs or uh, intergovernmental issues is with that UN security seat in the for in in their in theirs in the in their uh, side somewhere down the line, right? So if they say yeah, we're committed to almost as you mentioned five large to uh, very large missions, that looks and it gives a sense to the world that Canada is coming back as a another uh, as a as a bigger player than before. So I think there's a lot of posturing going on with the way the peacekeeping details are being kept, but this, as you mentioned, subtle hits, hints are being given out.
0: I yeah, yeah, and I feel like you can only play that game for so long yep. though, right? I mean, you can say Canada's back, but people are only sort of gonna cheer alongside you <laughs> until they get, you know, tired of hearing Canada's mm-hmm. back without any sort of actual commitment.
2: At a certain point, the government's going to have to actually commit to something as opposed to just saying we're going to be back. Mm-hmm. I mean, going back to your point about, you know, saying peacekeeping will come soon, soon. Even this defense policy review ended up being delayed True. by like <laughs> six months. <laughs> so that
1: that's not a great idea. More time for there. consultations. <laughs> and from my understanding, the stop block isn't with the UN. It's directly with Canadian internal politics. And it, it definitely makes you question what's going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing that is putting peacekeeping in the backseat, right? Because a lot of of armed forces missions and things that go on abroad happen under the radar. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times they don't show up in the news very frequently because there's either not enough people or it's a little bit status quo, for example, training soldiers as part of NATO in Latvia, or on any other section of Western Europe. Um, I'd be curious to see if it doesn't come about, why it didn't come about, and if the government's going to be answerable to those claims. And I guess on top of my unanswerable question and thoughts for the future, (laughs) we'll add to that. So I'm interested to hear from the group what would you have liked to see in this defense policy review that either wasn't addressed, didn't come up, the panel didn't really touch on it? Like, What's still grinding you?
3: Um, just to, I guess I'll go first. Uh, I think the panel mentions this, is that it's kind of startling that the defense policy re- review does not blatantly mention anything about America. It, did, it didn't have to say, oh, Trump led America, but it, did, it should have acknowledged the fact that for the last since, for the last 50 years, Canada has relied or Canada has uh, been motivated from a national defense sense in a lot in a lot of ways based on what America does or the American military or American national security policies are. So the fact that there's been a major paradigm shift in American military uh, strategies or uh, American military capabilities, this should have been reflected as almost a threat mm-hmm. or s- our considerations. And the fact that it's not been mentioned is somewhat concerning to me. Yeah, I have
2: to agree with Samra on this one. It's just strange that considering we're essentially reliant on the U.S. for a large part of our defense when you think about it, that there was not really much to be said about the fact that there's been a huge change in the U.S.'s defense and foreign policies since November. Well, since January, technically. Mm-hmm. but And we just sort of... You know, gloss over it a bit. It's like, why are we glossing over it? This is not something that we should just be, you know, passing over. It's a big deal. If, if, I mean, the U.S. government now, like, for instance, we're not sure if they're necessarily going to follow through on their NATO commitments to defend member states. If that that's a big deal right there. Did, no, did nobody, if writing the defense review think about this like I and mean, presumably it would be still be in the u.s's best interest to defend canada in case something happens because we're right next to them something that uh, attacks canada probably is going to affect the u.s uh, negatively as well but i'm not sure anymore like would the u.s necessarily react
0: as long as we paid them um <laughs> <laughs> no but i oh, yeah we'll send the check um I actually reread Minister Freeland's speech today, and I think the panel mentioned it's it's important to kind of view this document, you know, in connection with uh, Christopher Freeland's speech, where she does kind of go into depth into, um, you know, w- without calling Donald Trump out by name, but certainly mentioning America more than once, just, um, you know, America seemingly withdrawing or at least showing a reluctance to sort of you know, take on its burden of 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 global leadership as it, as as it always has, and you know, there's that defining line, um, the the uh, need for Canada to set a clear and sovereign course on on you know the uh, world stage. So,
1: and I think so. In my very shorthand, un <laughs> <laughs> unauthoritated answer to that, maybe it's it's leaning more to the political side in the sense that it's really bad to detract from your own sovereignty and say, yes, we are that bird that sits (laughs) on the back of a hippo. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that it, It definitely doesn't bode well in terms of instilling a national confidence for defense, especially when a lot of critics of this review are going to say, look at how much money the liberal government's spending, how can Canada afford this? I guess to bridge away from that, my biggest takeaway was I didn't see a lot in terms of how the defense policy was planning to integrate these initiatives with other departments. For example, Matt, you brought up what about providing for families of military Mm -hmm. servicemen and how do the existing social frameworks and domestic policy further integrate that to provide for people and you know, how is CSIS communicating with RCMP Mm -hmm. and how are all of these things supposed to come together under all of these expenditures and procurement that was brought up that we didn't get to cover so much of? I think it's, but it's one of those things that's not going to be, I guess, elaborated on in a defense review, right, Mm -hmm. in order to get into the weeds of it. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not it takes till 2027 to do a review on you know how the car is working so
0: actually
2: that sooner than that but uh, the wheels of government turn slowly
0: true um i i I suppose if i had one point again i'm ripping this off of something that i read today um (laughs) but it's it's it 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 was a good point i believe it was mclean's article where it really just stressed that so you know here's canada at least posturing that we're going to take on you know a greater leadership role globally or at the very least you know a greater leadership role within our existing sort of um, you know or like a member organization so NATO the UN um what the government sort of overlooks or you know doesn't really touch on are the logistical components that sort of you know allow us to do so um because you know our our military given its size and its capabilities not to take away anything from, you know, the professionalism or capabilities of the actual soldiers themselves, but let's be realistic, we're a small military with, you know, limited capabilities. Um, we often kind of, you know, act as an add-on to the missions of of, of allies, and we often, you know, employ uh, or make use of their bases or, you know, their 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 transport infrastructure, all of this. And if Canada is really to step up, and I'm thinking in places like the Arctic, or even in the Pacific where we might not really have that 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 sort of you know allied infrastructure or, or logistical uh capacity to fall back on, how are we really going to, you know, take a Canada lead in the Arctic or a Canada lead in the Pacific for our own defense that, that's sort of overlooked, or at the very least, it's 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 not really detailed.
1: And unfortunately I think we're running out of time. And that's all we have for today. Thank you, Mark and Samran, for joining us today. Our awesome research team. Couldn't do it without you guys.
2: Thank you for having us on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: So thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at Policy for updates and related content. So if you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter.
1: We would also like to extend our thanks to our editor, Megan Beaujolais, and our producer, Jyotsna Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Bridget.
0: And I'm Matt. This is Policy Talk.